invite you to open your Bibles with us this morning. 1 Corinthians, almost right to the end, chapter 15. I want to look with you this morning at really essentially just verse 50 to 58, but I want to back up so we have a a little bit of context and start our reading at verse 42. Begin and ask God to help us to hear His Word together, so let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that we could sing with confidence that You are our God and our Savior. That we could sing that, Lord, it is You who have led us out into victory. That, Father, now knowing this, we may come and be attentive to Your Word. That, Lord, we may come with the Spirit of the living God, opening not just our mind, but our hearts and our lives as well that we would hear and be given the grace to obey what we hear, that, Lord, your Spirit would be with me, that I would proclaim it faithfully in the power of your Spirit to the glory of Christ, who is King, and the nourishment to the blessing of us, your people. Bless your word to us now, we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, begin at verse 42. Here now, this is God's word. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And was the man of, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I will tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So far in God's word. Paul is wrapping up a letter to a Corinthian church that has addressed all kinds of things, helping them get in line with the truth of the gospel. What he's finally getting to in chapter 15 is a summation of the Christian faith. If we whittle down Christianity 
to a core doctrine, if you can do that, to a sort of seed and a centerpiece. What is it that drives it all? What's, what is the gospel essentially about? Paul's word, rather our word that we understand Paul getting to in all of chapter 15 is this term we call it substitutionary atonement. We're good at making big words. Substitutionary atonement. He began the chapter, if you just look back up, he said, I deliver to you what's of first importance, that is the most important thing, what I received, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, he rose again. He says the gospel, the most central thing, is about substitution. Our sin and the substitution of Christ in our place. On behalf, he says, Christ died for us. John Stott once wrote, the concept of substitution is critical to understand, and he said, both sin and our salvation. He goes on to say, because when we sin, we essentially sin is substituting ourselves for God. And that salvation is when God puts himself where we deserve to be. Substitution. Okay? Paul writes all of chapter 15 to explain, of course, the resurrection. To talk about how the death of Christ on our behalf is at the core of Christianity. He will talk about four main themes, of course, resurrection. How that produces, he'll talk about a new creation. And that then, of course, is all based or built on the death of death, which is where we started to pick up that produces in us a living hope. Hope being, of course, that joyful confidence based on the compelling evidence of the resurrection. The compelling evidence, which is what Paul has been focusing on all of chapter 15. But his conclusion, where I want to bring our attention to, is those last few verses, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and then his conclusion. Everything he said comes to this. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So here's what I want to look at briefly this morning. Because he brings up these three questions as he wraps up this letter to the church at Corinth. What do I need victory for? Because that's a theme for Paul. Victory, what do I need it for? How do I get it? And what difference would that look like in my life today? Because often we talk about what's coming, but what about today? Paul answers those three things. What do I need it for? How do I get it? What does it mean? Notice first what I need it for. Of course, Paul's chapter 15 is apologetical. That means it's a a defense of the faith, an explanation of the resurrection. And he's moved from the arguments, uh, the truth of the resurrection, based on the arguments from authority. Verse 1 to 4. And then he kind of moves in about the resurrection, defending it. Arguments from evidence. And talk about we have eyewitnesses of it. Verse 5 to 11. He actually spends a lot of time arguing from logic, which you might not think has a place in our defense of the resurrection, but Paul says it does. All the consequences logically that must be concluded if we deny the resurrection, Paul will take verse 12 to about 28 and talk about that. 
And he establishes that. Then he takes that and he starts to press it home pastorally into our lives. What does it mean? What does it mean that truth, the evidence of the resurrection of Christ from the dead and all these arguments of authority and evidence and eyewitnesses? He says it means something very important to you and that's this one word, victory. Victory. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Death, where's your sting? He quotes there from what we read from Isaiah 25, also Hosea 13, somewhere around verse 14. He quotes that as well. But I don't want you to miss the obvious here this morning. Because by saying that, we need to assume two things. That you, if you need victory, it means you have an adversary and an enemy you need to have victory over. And that... By implication, it's better to win than to lose. It's much better that you have a very serious enemy. And, and there is a losing that is inevitable apart from Jesus. We need victory over death. Because, as Paul will make very clear, we are perishable. We need victory over death because on our own, we can't beat it. I'm not sure if I need to elaborate much on this, but Paul does. He says, you have to remember the fact, let me just highlight this, that we are a vulnerable, a weak, and a decaying people. So verse 50, he says, listen, this flesh and blood, it's not able to inherit a kingdom of God. Somehow the perishables got to learn or got to be able to inherit the imperishable. And in our present day, it's, it's obvious, it should be, that we are a frail and a decaying people. At least once you... We're talking with the elders this morning, and I've got a couple weeks, and I'll be 52. And those those roll along, it becomes more and more evident than my own, my own mortality. And if it's not evident to you, it just means you're probably under 25, but give it some time, it'll happen. But it's why our culture is obsessed with the things that we are. Either distraction, or we try to befriend death. You know, we have these two reactions. A lot of us are entertained to the point that we try to just not think about it. We get so distracted, so we have all kinds of ways that's probably in your pocket this morning that we can entertain ourselves so that we are just not thinking of our mortality. More common today, I find, and I see it on the the, the kind of those announcements that they put in the post office for people's funerals, and they have these platitudes that death is just a natural part of life. I'm just in the next room. It's, it's just sort of a, my energy source has returned to the cosmos, to the, you know, the giant water source or river, whatever terms they're using now. But you know, when it gets quiet and there's no more platitudes or there's no more entertainment, you know it's not true. In fact, it's not natural. It's a vile intruder and you understand that. You know that because you part of you knows, well, I'm meant to last. Even the old philosophers, Epicurus, said, what people fear most about death is not that death is maybe annihilation, but that maybe it's not. It terrifies us to think about. So we distract ourselves. This thought that not just that, you know, if there is a God, but what if there's a God and I owe him something when it comes due, when I die and it's more than I can pay? It is. It's not just that we know we're dying. 
But of course, what he's, what he's pressing on is that we know we're not going to beat it. For all of our technology, for all of our ingenuity, for all of our efforts, there's nothing. And in fact, Lewis would put it, C.S. Lewis puts it the other way, the very fact that there's nothing that satisfies here, that no matter how much you get or gain or accomplish, it's, you know, that feeling, it's never enough. That that's telling you that if that's true, it must be true you were made for another world, a place where it does satisfy. That God made this world sort of booby-trapped to point us to him. That everything inside you, even in the moments of satisfaction, tells you death isn't natural. It's our enemy. And to us, naturally, it's unstoppable. John Calvin writes on this passage, John Calvin says, There is nothing that is more at variance with human reason than this article of the faith. For who but God alone could persuade us that bodies which are now liable to corruption will after having rotted away or after they have been consumed by fire or torn in pieces by wild beasts will not merely be restored entire, but in a greater, better condition. But not all our apprehensions of things straight away reject this as as a thing fabulous, nay, I say most absurd. John Calvin. Doesn't make sense instinctively that somehow we're going to beat death. That's why we love the old stories from the, the Old Testament of David and Goliath and those moments when the, the small, the frail beat the large. I know that Disney tells us you can do anything that you can set your mind to. You, you just believe in yourself. I know they say that, but the reason why all of Israel was terrified and wouldn't go out against this nine-foot-clad, iron-clad giant was because in their day, no matter how much you believed in yourself, that guy was going to crush you. It just isn't logical. And we know that, that that Goliath is death for us. No matter how much we try, I think the stat, I haven't checked it this morning, but I'm pretty sure it's still 100% for death. He's pretty effective. So here's the question after just the obvious is reviewed. Paul now talks about, well, where am I going to get victory? Where am I going to get victory? Paul says this in verse 56. You need a way to take the power away from the Goliath. You need to get at his power source. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you're going to defeat death, you've got to be able to deal with its power. That It's its power that's overwhelming. Human death entered our world, the Bible says quite clearly, through our sin. Without sin, death would have no power. No sting. Ketron is the word. It was used to describe what was most most around them, stinging them, and that was the scorpion. Everyone, says the Bible, has been stung. Everyone is a sinner, Romans 3.10. There is no one that's righteous. No, not even one. You've all been stung. And don't think that somehow by keeping the law and doing everything right, that somehow there you'll have power to live because that doesn't work. Because Paul says, look, the law is how the poison gets spread. You say, that sounds harsh. Romans 7, 8. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He said, it took, it, it, it revealed it. It showed where sin is in my life. And it condemned me. How do I beat death then? Even the law can't help me beat it. And it's as if at this moment, Paul understands how overwhelming the thought is. And he leans in after all of chapter 15 and talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he kind of says, I have a secret for you. Come in close. There's this mystery that I've, I've figured it out. How to beat death. Something outside of us has to change us. Something absolutely radical has to happen to you. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. There's going to be this last trumpet. And when that sounds, he says, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed for this perishable body has to become imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. He says, how's that going to happen? That's a pretty big deal. And if you just listen to what he said just before that, we read a little bit from verse 42 to 49. His answer is a somewhat enigmatic, covenant-based response. He says it's the second Adam. Right? You see those verses? The second Adam. Because the first Adam broke the law and we all inherited his curse. We all got stung. Literally, God's warning to him was right. Dying, you shall die. It's true. It's what happened. Now in Christ, he basically says, God gives us this new covenant rep. This new covenant head who came, he lived the law of God perfectly for us, and he paid our debts to the law. He took that wrath on that cross. God raised him, he's seated at God's right hand, interceding for us. That's the second Adam. That's who can defeat our enemy. I love how Hebrews 7.22 says, This Jesus makes the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were all many in number, but because they, you know, they were prevented by death itself to continue in the office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. Isn't that great? Because the law has been fulfilled by Christ, he alone can take the sting of death and defeat the enemy. And one day Paul says, what you have lived in all your life that's perishable has to, it can, it will put on the imperishable. This mortality will become immortal because of him. And he says, it'll happen in a flash. It'll happen in a quick blink of an eye. A trumpet will be sound and that will come into effect. And this gloating enemy, this dark shadow you've lived in all your life will be broken. The sting of death, the sin, the power of sin of the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is so sure. I want you to notice that the, that the scorpion stinger has been cut off and removed. He actually mocks death. Did you know that poetic structure there? 
that we read from is a, it's a song, but it's a song of derision and mockery. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Where's your sting, by the way? He knows where it's gone. He knows he's defeated, but he's mocking him. You've done it, maybe. Canadians, we, we like hockey, so it's that usually in the hockey, sometimes that song comes up. You know that song, na 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 na, na 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 na. Am I the only one who does that? Hey, 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 good. Right? You sing that, you sing that in the third period when the score is four nothing and there's only a minute left. Right? Because you know you've won. You don't sing it in the second period when the tie is, when the score is tied. Be a little premature. But when you're absolutely sure victory is in your grasp, you sing that mocking song. It's no different than David when you come before Goliath. You remember what David said to Goliath? I've always tried to come back to those words. He stands before Goliath. He's so sure that the victory is the Lord's. He says, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, whom you've defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. I'll give the, I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly will know that the Lord saves, not with a sword or a spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. It's, it's the same mocking song. I mean, appreciate this. For all your life, for all of your achievements, for all of your accolades, for all of your titles and abilities and everything you do to accomplish, on one sense, in one respect, all we get at the end is a stone that says, here lies. Ecclesiastes says, you know, that's where it's going. You have an unbeatable enemy. There is a Goliath that is massive. Unless, unless you have victory in Christ who will take his power away, then you can sing the gloating song. And you should. George Herbert, Puritan poet, writer, says, Alas, poor death. Where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Alas, poor mortal, void of story. Go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Poor death, and who is hurt by, who is, who was hurt thereby? Thy curse, being laid on him, makes thee accursed. Let losers talk. Yet thou shalt die. These arms, says death, shall crush thee. Herbert responds, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more, he says to death. One day you won't even exist. You want victory over a hideous monster? You need, the Bible promises, a better David. Someone, he's better because he doesn't just beat death. Do you know the Bible says he humiliates it? You know, when, when Paul writes in Romans, he says, you are more than a conqueror through Christ who loves you. Do you know how you can be more than a conqueror? I mean, I'm, I'm, I've played sports all my life. I've thought all the best you can do is just win. You get a better, higher score. Paul says, no, you can actually be a more than a conqueror. You can make your enemy serve you. Colossians 
13. You, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses and canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all the legal demands. This he set aside, how? Nailing it to the cross. There, he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them, listen to me, to open shame, triumphing over them. Paul says the cross was a mockery of death. The strongest thing it could possibly do, he took it and used it to make it serve us. The payment that you feared would come due one day meeting God that it would be more than you could pay, it is more than you can pay, has been paid in full in Christ. Stamped over your life, paid in full. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you're going to, it's the only way, listen to me, it is the only way you will defeat death if Christ does it for you. Here's the question. What is that victory that we shall, all those who trust in Christ, be wrapped up in one day, in that trumpet day, but can it look like something now today? Paul says, absolutely. This is the hope and the glory of the resurrection. It, Paul says, makes us have It does two things in our lives. He says it makes us stand firm and bound. You see those two verbs? I want to just point these out as we close here. It stands firm and abounds. It helps us to stand firm and live an immovable, steadfast life. And secondly, it helps us abound, he says, in the work of the Lord. Notice what he says about standing firm. This is the conclusion, again, of everything he said in chapter 15. Therefore, right? Therefore, since all this is true... It means a personal victory for us. This death swallowed up. This victory over death. He concludes now, therefore, here's what it means for your life today. And he doesn't say, pull up your bootstraps, work really hard, you know, be really good. Because that's not hope. Sometimes we've done that when things get hard. We just try harder and tell ourselves. But he says, that's not hope. Hope should make you live immovable in the face of darkness. Since I'm here, I can use the Lord of the Rings illustration because I've used up all my illustrations in Hillside. But one of my favorite quotes comes from Sam, who if you read or watched the movies, uh, he's Frodo's companion, faithful Sam. But there's this moment where he's close to Mordor, they're getting there and they just feel overwhelmed and, and just, you know, they're in some kind of black hole. But there's this quote from Tolkien He writes, there peeping up among the cloud rack, far above the dark tower in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked out at the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. He says the song in the the song in the tower that Sam sang, the song in the tower had just been defiance for he was only thinking of himself. Now, 
for a moment, his own fate ceased to trouble him. You know what that's like, don't you? You've, you're in the midst of something hard and painful. and it, It's a dark place. And you're dealing with fear. And sometimes we try to work on it directly with our will and pull up the brute straps and say, be defiant, be strong. You know, you're a Christian. You, this shouldn't bug you. And you try harder. But technically, that's not really hope, is it? What Sam found in the night sky, Tolkien says, it pierced his heart. It just pierced through. That's a joyful confidence. And it's, Paul says, it sits on top of all this evidence of the resurrection of Christ. But you need to look at times at that piercing beauty, particularly in the dark places. Look at the beauty of it. Let it pierce you. You want to be steadfast and immovable. You say, what is it going to stabilize me against? I'll tell you what it stabilizes you against. Primarily, it stabilizes you against our sin and our flaws that come to haunt you and trouble you. Did you look at the substitutionary work of Christ on your behalf? That he took your place on Calvary? That was who said two things. One, he obeyed the Father perfectly. He kept the law. Not my will, but your will be done. Secondly, he paid the debt for you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gospel is that he, as Keller likes to write, he lived the life that we should have lived, but we can't. He died the death that we deserve, but we can't on our behalf. And as you see that, as you believe it and cling to it, as that pierces through like a shaft into your heart, first, it stabilizes you against your sins and flaws. Some of you go to Costco, I presume. I go to Costco. Don't have to go there as much. I only have one son home now. The other three are off doing stuff. But I often like take this really weird moment where I like, you know, the hand you receipt, right? And there's always those like security guards at the at the uh, at the exit. You have your receipt in hand. You have this cart full of stuff. You go out, and you know, maybe you're like me. I just like flashing that receipt, saying, "Don't trouble me. I paid for all this. It's mine." Yeah, maybe I have an authority trip. I don't know what my problem is, but you know. We hold the receipt in hand and we give it to them and say, I owe you nothing. You know, Paul's trying to press that into you. You have this receipt in your life. When sin haunts you, when death tries to menace you, you've got a receipt that says paid in full. When the world demands you prove yourself to the world, when the people around you say, live like us, speak like us, earn things our way, prove yourself to get a, get a, get an identity the way the world wants to say, I don't need an identity. I've been bought in the blood of Christ. I don't owe you a thing. See your receipt? I am worthy of the blood of the King of Kings. And you know, not just to the world, but to your own conscience. How many times has your conscience tried to come after you for those past sins and those flaws and mistakes? How could you worship God after you did that? You're such a hypocrite. Here you are on Sunday morning, praising, but... If, he, if they only knew what you said or did. You need to preach. You need to hold the receipt. Romans 8.1, Now therefore there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's written on your soul. Hold the receipt up to the devil. He's the ancient adversary. You know who he's called? The accuser of the brethren. 
Because he sits there, if you take Job's story as an example, what he likes to do is come into the throne room and accuse you. They're liars. They're hypocrites. You can't accept them. They haven't kept the law. If you, you know what they've said. You know what they've done. And Jesus says, who lives, as we said from Hebrews, to make intercession. He says, let them go. You can't accuse them. They're covered in my blood. And almost gloatingly and mockingly pushes the receipt in their face. She belongs to me. He belongs to me. Paid in full. That's what, that's what you need the resurrection. That's what you need the gospel to stand firm against. Stand firm, not just against sin and the accusations of the world and the devil, but of course against the chaos of life. Earlier, Paul talks about Jesus being the first fruits. Remember that expression? It's verse 20. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I love that. It's, um, it was sort of the first harvest that would come and it would give you an indication of what the full harvest was going to be. So it, it was a really symbolic kind of foretaste of what was coming. Christians, he say, are people who live with the power and the joy of the next life in this one. You can live with the power of the resurrection now in your life. And in fact, that's how you lose hope. When you don't cling to it, when you don't let that resurrection of Christ pierce your heart. And you get, you get kind of frustrated or scared. Paul actually goes on to talk about how, you know, really it should make us impatient with the world. Right? We, we shouldn't, we shouldn't put our pen, our tent pegs down too deeply. Um, Exodus 12, we were looking at it with youth group last week, and and of course it's about how to eat the Passover. And the main thing that struck us when we looked at it at Hebrew, or excuse me, Exodus 12, was that they should eat it in haste, right? Put your robe on, put your belt on, like eat it like you're going through a drive-thru, like you're ready to go. It says, um, don't let anything remain till morning. Burn it. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in hand and you shall eat it in haste. Why? Because at any moment they were going to get out. At any moment there was going to be an exodus. They were going to go from being slaves to being free. He says the gospel should be like that for you. Don't get paid, don't get too settled here. If you know that's what's coming, live ready to go. 1 Peter 3.10 the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will be passed away with a roar and the, the heavenly bodies even will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and all the works that are done in it exposed. Since all these things shall thus be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be that live in lives of holiness and godliness? That's what holiness is. It's a kind of good impatience. Right? Peter says, be, be impatient with the sin and the brokenness of my own life in this world, striving for the next, living in the power of the next world in holiness. You've tasted the harvest. You know what's coming. That'll stabilize you against all the chaos of this world. And of course, he says, it'll stabilize you against death, even the threat of death. Historically, there were a couple epidemics that swept through all the Roman cities. From about Rome, from about AD to one to three or more, there was, um, a bunch of them and they didn't have the, the scientific understanding of germs like we do. Um, but 
they did see that anyone you got close to, you were probably going to get what they had. And it killed about close to 30% of most Roman cities. They were not small cities. And the common practice for the Romans was, of course, to get up and run, to leave, to isolate. And they would make anybody, even your own family members, do it. Roman historians even write, not the Christians. They stayed. They cared not just for their own, but they cared for the Romans, knowing that it would kill them. Were they better people than us? Were they more moral, more reformed? Or No. I think the resurrection had started to pierce their hearts. It made them steadfast. It made them immovable. This resurrection hope changed them. And I'm pretty sure some of our modern day circumstances wouldn't have separated them from each other either. It stabilized them against their own sin, against the chaos of the world, against death itself. The sting of death and sin, the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who's given us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast and immovable. Lastly, he says, you can abound in the work of the Lord. You can abound in the work of the Lord. It's not in vain, he says. Why would it be in vain? Well, earlier in verse 14, he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain, if that's not true. So then he goes on to give you all the evidence of the historical evidence of the resurrection. He said, what's the work of the Lord? Gospel ministry. Um, anything done on the basis of, in the power in, out of the purpose of living out and putting on display this truth that he's just preached, what Christ has done on our behalf, died on our behalf, rose on our behalf, all of everything he said, anything that puts that to light, puts it in display in my life. Earlier in verse 32, he says, look, if the dead aren't raised, why are all people baptized on behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What I do gain, if humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, if there's no resurrection, sure, you might as well pay heed to the hedonist philosophy of our day. Get what you can now. It's all about experiencing everything you can. Paul says the resurrection teaches you that's not true. There's a missionary named C.T. Studd. He said, only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Resurrection gives us an, a reason and an ability to pursue, Peter says, godliness and live the, what's, the life of what's coming in this life now because Christ is that first fruit you can experience Him. And it gives us the power to live sacrificially, to give to others, to detriment to ourselves, to live in ways for Him that we leave our shelters and our comfort and expose ourselves to whatever dangers there are of the world, and be steadfast and to be movable and abound in the work, knowing that whatever you're doing, small or big or little, it's never in vain if it's done on behalf of the Lord, ever. The God, listen to me, proclaiming the gospel by deed and most particularly by word is never in vain. It is never in vain. It may not bear the fruit that you want right now, but the scripture says one day there'll come a harvest. Galatians 6, 9, don't grow weary of doing good. In due season you'll reap. 
Don't give up. The harvest is coming. You have first fruits. You've tasted it. You know the harvest is coming. It's never in vain. And, and it's never in vain because even just doing it shapes us, doesn't it? Isn't that how we grow? Just committing ourselves to following? Isn't that how he conforms us? Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore, says Paul. But Christ who lives in me, the life I live now, I live by flesh. In, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who I live for. That's how I live, he says. It's all about putting the crucifixion on display. Earlier, Paul said in verse 21 here, he says, look, I, look, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Right? What's the purpose of the death of Christ? You, sometimes we think, oh, to redeem me. Yes, but it's to magnify himself through you. It's to put his grace on display in your life. Right? We said earlier, if sin is when we put ourselves where only God should be, Grace and the love of God is putting himself where we deserve to be. And Paul says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if it was righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He didn't die for no purpose. He died so that grace could be put on display in your life. And that whatever word or deed you do out of that love of Christ, regardless of who sees it, it's never in vain. They shape us. It gives us hope just doing it. All your work. Doesn't it mean that no matter what you do, we, we give it this title, right? The priesthood of all believers. We talk about how that, that kingdom work belongs to the church. But let me just put it right down to this. No matter what you do, in and through the power of Christ, it's never in vain. One writer is, writes, every act of love, gratitude, kindness, every work, all of this will find its way through the power of the resurrection, power of God, to the new creation, which God who will make one day. This is the logic, he says, of the mission of God. God's recreation of his, uh, his recreation of his wonderful world, which has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the resurrection of the risen Christ and his power of the spirit means that whatever you do in Christ by the spirit in this present age is not wasted. Ever. Um, for I've been pastor in Elmont now. The Lord has sustained me 25 years. Um, one of the things I've enjoyed doing is coaching the local football team. And um, I often think about the church when I think about coaching football. And I, I have this continuing sort of moment and illustration in my mind. You know, often in football, we, we train, like in any sport, I suppose, for a long time to get in shape. But we talk about getting in hit shape. Like, you can't just be have good cardio. You have to get used to the, the collision sport that it is. Vince Lombardi said, you want a contact sport, do ballroom dancing. Football's a collision sport. It's a collision sport, so you got to kind of get in hit shape, we say. And I always imagine, you know, what would happen if we do all the drills and hit the dummies and do the tackling and, you know, and then, you know, the first game comes and we send them all out there and they come back in after the first series and say, Coach, I'm not going back out there. People are trying to hit me. And sometimes I think of us as a church, you know, we, we do good things. We, get, we, we do things that are necessary to grow in Christ. We have Bible studies, we come to worship, we study the word, we pray for each other. We do all the great practice, we get in shape. And then we're afraid to go out and get hit sometimes. 
And I think of God just looking at us going, that's good stuff. Train. You need to do it. Right? Go to study. Pray for each other. Do these things. Give. But you know what? The victory's already won. So don't worry about getting hit. You are more than conquerors who Christ who loves you. I've already secured it. I've taken this thing out of death for you. So what if you get hit? What does it matter? I've always appreciated Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher. He's got this prayer that goes like this. He says, Lord, help me to do the great things as though they were little because I do them with your power. He says, and help me to do the little things as though they are great since I do them in your name. Substitutionary atonement. It's a big kind of cold sounding word, but it should be, Paul says, like a shaft that comes through the darkness of our life. Pierce your heart and be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And it should smote it, as Tolkien says. That everything you do now, everything you do in and through him matters. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.